Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Org. Today is Friday, November 13th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Yahweh willing, the introduction to last week's program will be the basis for an article on covenant theology in the next Saxon Messenger, because covenant theology is the only valid theology. Everything else is a satanic lie. Hopefully, we'll be able to get that out before the end of the year and get on a more regular quarterly schedule next year. We have just published issue number 41 of the Saxon Messenger the other day, probably about six weeks late. We will remind our listeners that the Saxon Messenger is available in print. The PDF copies that we distribute freely have typically gotten many thousands of downloads each, but we do not sell many print copies. I'm not complaining, and some people complain they are too expensive. The fixed cost of the print copies is 20 cents per page plus a dollar for binding and not quite two dollars for domestic shipping. We add about a dollar and a half to the cost of each issue for our troubles and for our own ministry support. So the recent 72-page magazine is pricey at almost $17. That can't be helped. That's the additional cost you bear when you have print-on-demand. I could probably print issues for $6 a piece if I knew that I could sell like 2,000 of them because you have to print a lot of issues to get any sort of decent price. But I frequently, me personally, I frequently pay 14 15 even $17 or $18 for an 80-page Linux magazine or an 80-page programming magazine. And I buy them quite infrequently, but I do buy them. And they're usually over half-filled with advertising. Of course, we don't have any advertising except for perhaps our own. But we only seek to bring the best Christian identity articles and other articles of importance to our white race to the attention of as many people as possible. Nothing serves to capture the interest of people like a high-quality, glossy magazine. The Jews know that, and they line the supermarket checkout counters with their own glossy magazines for that very reason. So we would encourage people to consider purchasing copies of the Saxon Messenger, not for our profit, but because they are excellent tools with which to evangelize our message. Currently, all 41 editions of the Saxon Messenger are available as print-on-demand copies, and they can all be viewed in advance at the new Saxon Messenger website, which has only recently been completed. You can get there by going to saxonmessenger.org. We did something for the first time this week and made a single program audio CD of our recent program addressing King James-only Christians. We did this so that we could send copies off to particular worthy individuals. Of course, we won't waste our money on Baptist ass clowns. 
So we thought we would make it generally available, and it's on the website now at $4.50 a copy or something like that. Thinking about this method, it might be worthwhile for us to go back and do the same with other topics that we feel are important, and we may do that. But the limit for an audio CD is perhaps 75 to 79 minutes. There are not many of our programs that can be squeezed into that format. We did this particular program with the objective of putting it on an audio CD, and we still went over 82 minutes since I didn't watch the clock. So I was able to cut out the two-minute banter at the beginning, use a sound processing program to remove all the white space, and that put the length well within the limitation, cutting it to under 70 minutes. While CDs are selling a little better than Saxon Messengers, we hope that it is realized that they are also a good tool by which to spread our message. It's easier to hand somebody a CD than it is to get them to go to a website and listen to a bunch of podcasts. We hope it's realized that they are useful for that purpose, and we hope that people buy them even if they make their own copies once they do buy them. Sit and make your own copies all you want. It's the podcasts. I don't care. With this, we will, now, now that we've spanned you for five minutes, we will present the Epistles of Paul and our fourth part of our presentation on Ephesians. This is subtitled, The Restoration of the Saints. As we have previously explained at length, for the first three chapters of this epistle, Paul has been teaching covenant theology and explaining to these Ephesians both how and why they should choose to follow Christ. So, for example, Paul has told them that they were chosen in Christ from the foundation of society, or, if you will, from the foundation of the world, preordained for the position of sons, redeemed, forgiven for their sins, and given an inheritance which they had expected beforehand, since they had before had an expectation in Christ. Among other things, Paul also told them that they were indeed the nations in the flesh, meaning that they were the people who had at one time been alienated from God, but who are now reconciled, that they are of the family of the favor, and that they are of the body of Christ, which is built upon the apostles and the prophets. As we have seen, all of these things can only pertain to Old Testament Israelites. Therefore, in chapter 3 of this epistle, Paul also explained that a mystery had been revealed to him, which is the mystery of the anointed, not the mystery of Christ himself, the mystery of the anointed that is found in the identity of the nations of the promises of Yahweh God, which God had made to Abraham. We have seen that the mystery of the anointed, of which Paul spoke, is also that new thing which Yahweh had promised to do with Israel in Isaiah chapter 43, having brought the deported Israelites through a way in the wilderness 
and having created many nations from Abraham's seed. While there are a few other white nations in Europe before that time, those many nations descended from Abraham had begun to spring up in Europe after 1600 B.C., 400 years after the promise to Abraham, and especially after the Assyrian deportations of the late 8th century B.C. And we were informed by Isaiah as to exactly where those later nations would be sent by God in Isaiah 66, verse 19. This is the only historically legitimate view of modern white identity. This is also described in the marvelous work of Isaiah chapter 29, whereby Israel would be made to say, who seeth us and who knoweth us? And they would not even know that they were the very vessel formed in the hands of the potter. This being revealed to Paul through the writings, Paul was then able to conduct his ministry of reconciliation to the family of the faith, a singular family, which are the nations descended from Abraham through Jacob Israel. We have seen that Paul had previously explained these same things in diverse ways to the Romans, to the Corinthians, and to the Galatians, all of whom were also nations which had physically descended from Abraham through the Old Testament Israelites. All of these things are so plainly evident in the epistles of Paul, and all of these things can be proven in a survey of the classical histories and the books of the prophets, yet they are not commonly known among men. And that, too, is a facet of the systematizing of deception, which Paul shall mention here later in this chapter. With that, we will commence with the first verse of Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I summon you, I, who am in bonds in the prince, or in the Lord, if you will, to walk worthily of the calling of which you have been called past tense. Here in this opening verse of the chapter, Paul once again tells us that he writes the epistle while he is under arrest. But Paul understands that his imprisonment is by the will of Christ, and therefore he characterizes it in that manner. Now, Paul uses the word desmos here, where we have bonds. And then in verse 3, he uses a similar but compound word, desmos, where we also have bond, but which more fully refers to a bond of union between individuals. With his use of these similar words, Paul engages in a wordplay while he also relates to his readers that the bond of the union in the body of Christ, in the spirit, as he explains in, which he terms it as in verse 3, that bond is certainly a greater bond than what he had presently suffered in the flesh as he wrote this epistle. As he explains in verse 9, 
that Christ eventually takes all captivity captive to himself. And in this, all Christians shall ultimately prevail regardless of their earthly estate. We will speak more on that captivity and the nature of that captivity later. But according to the entire context of this epistle, the calling in which anyone has been called is found only in the Old Testament prophets, since the body of Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which was preordained and chosen before the foundation of the society, as Paul has explained in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. We see this calling described in Isaiah chapter 41 from verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yeah, I will help thee, yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. So we see the promise of God that the Old Testament Israelites are his chosen, that the Old Testament Israelites are not cast away, even though at the time that Isaiah wrote, they were going off into captivity, and that the Old Testament Israelites are his called. And Paul is following that same calling here in Ephesians as he has explained throughout the previous three chapters of this epistle. In addition, as we read of that calling in Isaiah, the promise of the calling includes the promise that all of the nations or people groups, Old Testament nations or people groups, they are not governments and they are not geographical entities. All of the nations which strive against the Old Testament Israelites shall indeed be destroyed, and only in that promise does our race have any hope today. Therefore, the bond of union of the body of Christ in the spirit is a racial bond since these promises were made to a particular race of people, the white race of nations descended from Abraham through the Old Testament Israelites. We may also determine through Scripture that the Old Testament Israelites are not the Jews, as Paul is recorded as having said in Acts chapter 26, when he was under arrest in Judea. And he said, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I 
am accused of the Jews. So according to Paul himself, the 12 tribes are an entity distinct from the Jews. And the Jews are distinct from the 12 tribes. And according to Paul in Acts chapter 26, which was over 25 years after the resurrection of Christ, the promises of God still belong to those same 12 tribes. Later, in Isaiah chapter 42, a chapter which begins a messianic prophecy, we read, Thus saith Yahweh God, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it, He that gives breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, the calling in which we have been called. If you're not one of these Old Testament Israelites that Isaiah is talking about, you weren't called. Forget it. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee, this is a messianic prophecy, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations. Those nations are the seed of Abraham who became many nations, as it is described by Paul in Romans chapter 4, as Paul had attested in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring. Just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you, God speaking to Abraham. A promise and a prophecy that was both made and fulfilled many centuries before the time of Christ. All of these things which Paul asserted can be proven in a study of classical history. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, because of the bond of union, which they should all share in common, Paul begins to describe the spirit in which Christians should walk, for it is that spirit which is spoken of here in Isaiah, chapter 42. So, Paul informs the Ephesians that the calling is, with all humility and meekness, with forbearance, having patience with one another in charity, being eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, having patience with one another, with charity, that may have been translated with love. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, even if the man should already be caught up in some transgression, you, those of the Spirit, restore such a man in the spirit of meekness, watching yourself, lest you may also be tested. So there, thereby, we know what Paul means by forbearance and having patience with one another in charity and meekness. Christians should have humility, but what is humility? In James chapter 4, we read in verse 6, but more greatly he gives favor, on which account it says, quoting the Old Testament, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives 
favor to the humble. Examining the Old Testament, we learn that humility is not kissing one another's asses. Humility is a willingness to submit to the word and the laws of God. For instance, it says in Proverbs 3.34 from the Septuagint, the Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what James was quoting. The differences are only matters of the choice of translators. In Job 22, verse 29, in the Septuagint, we read, Because thou hast humbled thyself, and thou shalt say, Man has behaved proudly, but he shall save him that is of lowly eyes, meaning him that is not of a proud or arrogant demeanor. In Hosea chapter 13, we read along those same lines, speaking of the northern tribes of Israel, when Ephraim spoke trembling, in other words, when he was in fear of God, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended in Baal, meaning idolatry, he died. The truly humble man is not one who is merely polite to his fellow man, but one who subjects himself to the word of God. The lesson in Hosea chapter 13, which we just cited, is that men destroy themselves when they follow along with one another in their sins. Of course, Christians should be polite to their brethren, but they have no compulsion to offer them comfort when they themselves are opposed to the word of God. Polity is not humility. True humility is obedience to God in spite of the desires or expectations of men. Therefore, in that same place, in James chapter 4, in the very next verse, James concludes, Therefore, subject yourselves to God, but stand against the devil, and he shall flee from you. So men have no obligation to be humble towards devils, or even towards those who agree with devils. As Paul said in Romans, the law is spiritual, so the bond of unity in the spirit must be found in the keeping of the law. Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Men, being carnal, their challenge is to disregard the lusts of the flesh and follow the spirit of the law. When men agree to submit themselves to God and to the word of God, then they can have harmony in the bonds of unity. So where Paul continues, he explains that Christian men should be like-minded in that manner. And he says in verse 4, One body and one spirit, just as you also have been called in one hope of your calling. One hope for all the children of Israel. One prince, one faith, one immersion, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And to each one of us, meaning to every Israelite of the calling, 
And to each one of us, favor has been given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So Paul tells Christians that they are all one body, as all Christians should be of the same race, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, is how Yahweh our God defined a lawful marriage in Genesis chapter 2. The whole family, which Paul referred to in Ephesians chapter 3, the whole family meaning all Israelites, those 12 tribes who had this hope, as Paul said in Acts chapter 26. They all have the same Adamic spirit, and therefore they should be able, they may not currently, but they should have the capacity to agree in Christ. Having all been made in his image, they should seek to conform themselves to his image, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 8, where he wrote, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We have previously shown that the called according to his purpose outlined in the words of the prophets so they could only be those people whom God said he had called. That's his purpose back there in Isaiah, the children of Israel. You are my chosen You are my called. I have called you. And Paul continues, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Being called in the hope of his calling. The calling in Christ is a call to reconciliation and obedience to God for that one race, who are the descendants of the Old Testament Israelites. Paul had said in Romans chapter 15 that for whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And that alone should tell you that the Old Testament is not a Jewish book. The Old Testament is a Christian book. We have proven that in several other ways throughout our presentations of Paul's epistles. We will show it much more often, I pray, when we get to the epistle of the Hebrews. Now, the God of patience, continuing to quote Romans chapter 15. Now, the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And that's because Christians should all humble themselves and admit that the law and the word of God are good. And once we all agree in God's law, then we can all agree with each other and glorify God with one mind and one mouth, being like-minded one toward another. Christians have only one master, 
or prince or lord, however you want to translate the word. And if they all agree with him, they shall indeed find common ground for agreement with one another. It would be easy. Additionally, there is only one baptism. In Romans chapter 6, Paul described that one one baptism as the baptism in the death of Christ, meaning that Christians should all realize the meaning and purpose of his death, something of which denominational churches and universalists are completely ignorant, even though Paul describes it plainly in Romans chapter 7. A lot of people make excuses that the baptism in water is representative of the baptism in his death. They get baptized in water. They chase the form, and they forget the reason why, or they're never taught the reason why. So they have the form, but they don't have the substance. What's more important, the form or the substance? Because men aren't justified by the works of their hands. Chasing the ceremony, we're chasing after the form and trying to justify ourselves by the works of our hands. Going after the form, we're missing the substance. Being baptized in the death of Christ, we learn the reasons, the historical and scriptural reasons for the death of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul informs his readers that the one baptism is the washing of water by the word, not the water. The washing of water by the word, receiving of the word of God, receiving of the gospel of reconciliation, is the washing that we require. As Christ himself had told his apostles, now... You are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you, John 15.3. Paul again asserts that there is one God. But Thomas looked at Jesus Christ and said, My Lord and my God. Paul again asserts that there is one God, not three. Paul then concludes that to each one of us, favor has been given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And therefore, no priest, no pope, or any other man who seeks to rule over men is truly legitimate in the eyes of God. We don't need any intercessor but Christ. We don't need a pontiff or a bridge to God. That's a Roman pagan idea. Only Christ can be king, and in the end, only Christ will be king. The governments of this world are a punishment from God as a result of the rejection of God by the ancient Israelites. The professional priesthoods and the popes are an aspect of that punishment. Paul then asserts in verse 8, on which account it says, having ascended to the summit, he has taken captivity captive. He has given gifts to man. We have a little technical discussion here. All of the extant Greek manuscripts up to the ninth century agree here on the reading of Paul's Greek. 
he has given gifts to man. This is a citation of the first part of Psalm 68, verse 18, where it says in the King James Version, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men. However, in the Septuagint Greek of Psalm 68:18, as well as in the Hebrew of the Masoretic text, the King James mistranslated it. The verse states in part that thou hast received gifts for man, not men. It is generally observed by students of Greek that most of the quotations of the Old Testament that appear in the New Testament have been made from the Septuagint. That's mostly true, most of the quotations. However, there are some quotations which agree with the Masoretic text rather than the Septuagint. We often refer to a third choice, a third source, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when we find discrepancies between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, to try to determine the nature of the discrepancy. Such discrepancies could be because of differences in Hebrew source texts, but they may also be from mere differences in translation. Unfortunately, the copies of Psalm 68, which survived in the Dead Sea Scrolls, only preserved up to verse 17 and do not contain Psalm 68:18. This verse, the way Paul wrote it, agrees with neither the Septuagint nor the Masoretic text. According to the sources available at the time our translation was made, and so far as we can presently find, only the Aramaic Targums are said to have this verse as it is quoted by Paul here. And commentators use this instance, among a few others, to illustrate the importance of the Aramaic Targums. One example of that is in Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary on page 167. However, it may also be conjectured that the psalmist, writing long before the resurrection, originally wrote the verse differently, and therefore the original copy states, Thou hast received gifts for man, in reference to the Adamic man collectively. But Paul, writing after the resurrection of Christ, may have purposely wrote the verse in the manner which it appears here, where it says, he has given gifts to men. The verse of the psalm following this one, which Paul cites, agrees, where it says in Psalm 68:19, Blessed be the Lord, who daily loads us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. The King James Version and Breton Septuagint English differ greatly reading that verse as well, but we can attest that those differences are only a result of the translators. Focusing on the technical aspects of this verse, we do not want to omit commenting on the phrase Paul quotes where it says that he has taken captivity captive. The psalm is attributed to David but it is a prophetic psalm of messianic significance which declares the release and empowerment of the captive people of God. Therefore, the captivity mentioned here 
can only refer to the captivity into which the 12 tribes of Israel were sent in ancient times. That's the captivity Christ took captive, that they would be liberated by becoming captive to Christ rather than to their worldly oppressors. As a digression, Psalm 68, verse 4, while we're on the topic of Psalm 68, is accurately translated as it is read in the King James Version, but not in certain other versions, where it reads, Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. And we see there the anglicized and shortened form of the name Yahweh, which also appears within many Hebrew names, such as Jeremiah, Hezekiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Nehemiah, and on and on. The list is long. And with this, we'll go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9. Now, he that ascended. What is it if not that he also descended? In other words, Paul's basically saying that if he ascended, it's for no real reason unless he also descended. Now, he that ascended, what is it if not that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also he who ascended above all of the heavens in order that he would fulfill all things. And here, Paul appears to be referencing that same Peter thing which Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we will quote from verse 18, for Christ also had suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the apostle clarifies this meaning, stating that, in verse 6, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. In chapter 3 of his epistle, Peter was speaking in regard to the spirits of those sinners who had died in the flood of Noah. But his remark in chapter 4 while it defines what he meant in chapter 3, is nevertheless more general, speaking of all of those of the Edenic race who were dead. This may sound fantastic to non-Christians, but it should not be doubted by Christians, and it should not even be disputed by pagans. And I'll explain why. As Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If there is a God of creation, then Christians have the hope of that God, that like him, they will also transcend 
this physical creation. As he has promised, the wisdom of Solomon says in chapter 2, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. As for the pagans, who often dispute with Christians without understanding the source of their own myths, reading the Iliad or the Odyssey of Homer, reading the poems of Hesiod or the Epic Cycle, as well as the pagan, Sumerian, and Babylonian myths left to us in inscriptions, or the remains of ancient pagan Germanic literature found in the Eddas, and in literature such as the Nibelungen Lied or the Voluspa, it is clear that all of the early branches of our white Adamic race had the same transcendental beliefs which are found in our Bibles. They all believed in an underworld abode of the dead, in a Tartarus, later called Hades, or in a Niflheim, later called Hell, after the pagan goddess Hela, and the eternal existence of the spirits of the dead in those places, along with the hope for them of something better. Many of those same ancient writings also express the possibility of returning to the natural world, or at least to one very much like it, which is found in Babylonian legends, in the tragic poets of the Greeks, and in the Nordic legends of Ragnarok, as well as in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christianity is indeed an Aryan creed, and understanding its sources, Christianity is the original Aryan creed. The pagan literature repeats a lot of the same beliefs, but it lacks the prophetic record, which is what proves that God is true. Paul continues by speaking of the hope of the calling and the gifts given to men in verse 11. And he has given the ambassadors, or apostles, and the interpreters of prophecy, or, as we shall explain, the prophets, and those who deliver the good message, and the shepherds, teachers, and the Christogenian New Testament has shepherds dash teachers, and there's a reason for that I will explain. In other places, Paul lists other gifts of the Spirit, but here he mentions four offices, four offices of the Christian assembly, ambassadors or apostles, interpreters of prophecy, evangelists, those who delivered a good message are evangelists, and shepherds or teachers. We can only imagine that three of these offices exist today because we do not recognize that anyone living can justly, justly, consider himself an apostle. The function of minister is not in addition to people who have these four gifts. Rather, the term minister is a function which any one of these people may fulfill at any given time. But because 
because a minister is simply a servant. Servant is the original meaning of the word. Even those without these gifts may function as ministers, so long as they are performing some service to the body of Christ. That is what it is to be a minister, to be somebody who is performing some service to the body of Christ. It could be helping little old ladies across the street, or to the car with their groceries, or anything else, cleaning up the yards of the elderly. Anything that could be helping people of the body of Christ is in essence, fulfilling the role of a minister. So, in reality, every true Christian should seek to be a minister of one sort or another, even if he does not have one of these four gifts. Because every true Christian should be doing something by which to serve the body of Christ. The Greek phrase, translated here, shepherds-teachers, is literally, and the shepherds and teachers. But the clause is a Greek grammatical construction called a hendiadis, which literally means one by two, which is a use of a conjunction and a definite article in a manner which denotes that the two objects being joined together are actually referring to one and the same thing. The phrase is better written, and the shepherds who are teachers. But using a simple dash, I have tried to denote the meaning without adding the words who are to the text. One Greek Grammarian, William G. MacDonald, in his small grammar handbook, Greek Enchiridion, on page 117, uses this very passage to illustrate the use of this grammatical construction in Greek, the hendiatis. The hendiatis is one reason why some of these little phrases should not be interpreted literally because you would get five offices out of four and imagine somehow that shepherds or teachers are two different things. And Paul is not saying that. He's saying that shepherds are teachers. Here we see that a shepherd is actually a teacher. And Paul himself defines the office. This is what a pastor is supposed to be, a teacher. As the word pastor comes from the Latin word for shepherd, borrowed into English by medieval churchmen, even for the early Geneva Bible, as well as the King James Version. The word pastor or pastors appears several times in both versions, in Jeremiah, as well as here in Ephesians 4.11. Of course, a shepherd or a pastor being a teacher, that would mean that the pastor should be a teacher of the word of God. Today, the word pastor has a corrupted definition. In James chapter 4, verse 1, the King James Version translates a Greek word which means teacher as master, which is the way a teacher was called 400 years ago. And it should say, I, my brethren, I'm sorry, my brethren, 
being not many teachers, where the King James has masters, being not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. So the office comes with great responsibility, and those who are blessed with it had better maintain their humility, meaning their willingness to submit to the word of God. That's true humility. It's the pastors who are constantly being condemned in the book of Jeremiah for leading the people of God astray. But the role of a pastor is not to rule over men. Paul of Tarsus himself rejected the notion where he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul would not lord over the faith of the Corinthians, and no pastor should seek to lord over men. Therefore, for the Christian, there are no legitimate popes. There are no legitimate priests. Furthermore, as Paul wrote here in verse 7, to each one of us, favor has been given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So there is no need for priests, as each one of us has our gifts from God himself, and we should each share those gifts directly with the assembly, the body of Christ. There's no need in Christianity for any organized priesthood. The phrase interpreters of prophecy may have been written simply as prophets. The word prophet may mean any one of three things, and all three things are used in the New Testament. Those who are inspired by God to relate what shall happen in the future or what happened in a remote past, as the prophets of the Old Testament had done. Those who have the ability to reveal things not openly known, such as the secrets of a man's heart. Or those who are interpreters of the words of the Old Testament prophets and the other oracles of God, since the original Greek meaning of a prophet was an interpreter of the sayings of God. Unless the reference is to one of the Old Testament prophets, only the last two uses are prevalent in the New Testament. Somebody who can reveal things not known or somebody who can interpret the words of the prophets. Frequently, in our translation of the New Testament, we have chosen to interpret the word prophet according to the last meaning we have given as someone who is an interpreter of the words of God in the Old Testament prophets. And especially, we interpret the word to have that meaning in Paul's epistles. Here is our reason, that the purpose of these four offices the prophets or interpreters of prophecy, the teachers or shepherds or pastors, the evangelists and the apostles, the original apostles. The reason for these four offices is for the restoration of the saints. 
as Paul is about to tell us in verse 12 of this chapter. If one wants to restore the saints, one must have an understanding of who the saints are. And as we have exhibited throughout these epistles, and especially last week in our discussion of covenant theology, the covenant theology which Paul himself presents in the first three chapters of this epistle, we saw that the prophets of the Old Testament certainly do reveal who the saints are, if one can interpret their words properly. So Paul describes four Christian offices, and then in verse 12, he tells us the purpose of those four offices, towards the restoration of the saints, for the work of ministering, for the building of the body of the anointed. The body of Christ himself doesn't need to be built. The body of his people need to be built. The reference to saints here, the restoration of the saints, is not a reference to a corporate entity, such as a football team, where the management can hire any nigger that runs fast to fill any available position, whether or not the nigger is actually from New Orleans. Rather, the Greek verb, katarizo, I'm sorry, katarkizo, used as a substantive here, according to Liddell and Scott, primarily means to adjust or to put in order again, to restore, as Herodotus and other Greek writers frequently use the term. In the New Testament, we see the same word, katartizo, used in Matthew 4.21 and in Mark 1.19 to describe the mending of nets, which would be the mis the restoring of nets which already existed to their original condition. The same word as a verb was properly translated as restore in, in the King James Version at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. In the sense of putting something in order, the word was sometimes used with a secondary meaning, to furnish completely or to be well furnished or complete. That's a secondary meaning in certain senses where you're speaking of something that already existed that wasn't furnished completely and which needed to be restored. But this word certainly does not mean perfected. So the word is used to describe the repair of something such as fishing nets, which had already existed, to restore it to its healthy or complete condition. In that sense, it could mean perfected. The Geneva Bible has the phrase for the repairing of the saints at the beginning of this verse. Another valid alternative may have been restoring. But the point is, that Paul is referring to the rehabilitation of a body of people who are already saints. Paul is not referring to the filling of an entity called saints with any sort of people. Your entire worldview determines how you understand a passage. The word saints properly refers to sanctified ones. 
Israelites. And in the Old Testament, it refers to the children of Israel having been sanctified by Yahweh their God. To sanctify something basically means to set it aside for the purposes of God. The children of Israel were set aside for the purposes of Yahweh their God at Mount Sinai. From that point onwards, they were to be a separate people, as it is described in Exodus chapter 19. And even before that, when Abraham had placed Isaac upon the altar, that is when the children of Israel were ritually sanctified. The word saints appears first in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, Yahweh came from Sinai and rose up from Seir under them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yeah, he loved the people. This is only speaking of the people of the children of Israel. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. Every one shall receive of thy words. Later, in a prayer of Solomon, recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, where Solomon is prophesying the future captivity of Israel for his sins, he concludes in verse 41, Now therefore arise, O Yahweh God, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests, O Yahweh God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy saints rejoice in goodness. O Yahweh God, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Remember the mercies of David thy servant. Much later, in Psalm 79, a psalm which was written by Asaph after the captivity of Judah, it is apparent that the children of Israel were considered the saints of Yahweh even when they were being punished for their sins. They were still the saints when their dead carcasses for their sins lay on the ground in heaps. And it says from verse 1, O God, the heathen, meaning the Babylonians and their allies, the heathen are come into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat unto the fowls of heaven, the flesh of thy saints, unto the beasts of the earth. So they're saints even in their sin when they're being punished. A saint is not a good boy or a good girl. A saint is a person designated as separate by God, set aside for his purposes, whether that person's to be exalted or humbled. That's what a saint is, separated and dedicated to the purposes of God, and that can only describe the children of the Old Testament Israelites. Their blood had they shed like water round about Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. We are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy 
burn like fire. The Old Testament children of Israel were torn up in, in the time of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. The Old Testament children of Israel are the saints awaiting restoration in Christ, as Psalm 79 attests. The meaning of the word and of Paul's statement here is not in reference to the perfecting of some corporate entity known as saints by filling it with available bodies willing to work in the interest of the corporation by being believers. That's not what a saint is. Rather, it refers to repairing or restoration of a body of saints which already existed. The saints already existed, and according to Psalm 79, where it's clearly evident they needed to be repaired, just like the fishing nets of Peter and his friends. They were in tatters. This is why Paul described his gospel as a gospel of reconciliation, being repaired. Those saints who were already saints would be believers as well, choosing to be obedient to that calling by which they were called. So the purpose of the offices of the apostle, of the prophet, or interpreter of prophecy, of the evangelist, and of the pastor or teacher is this and this alone, the restoration or repairing of the saints of God. Since the body of Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as Paul had explained at the end of chapter 2 of this epistle, then the saints that he speaks of must be the same saints described in the utterances of the prophets. Any pastor who is not endeavoring to restore the saints of God, which are those of the white race descended from the ancient children of Israel, is a fraud, a wolf entering the sheepfold by another way, scattering the sheep rather than gathering them in Christ. Paul sees the building of the body of the anointed as a continuing process, as he says in the very next verse, until we all would attain to the unity of the faith, and of the acknowledgement of the Son of Yahweh, and man perfected at the measure of the stature of the fullness of the anointed. In spite of the fact that it was plagued by wars, medieval Europe became a great society, which in many aspects had far eclipsed the historical accomplishments of the ancient empires. Its greatness can be attributed to its Christian ethics, even though it was built on poor foundations. And those poor foundations led to its destruction. America's going the same way. First, the universal notion of the Roman Catholic Church rejected the racial covenant theology of the prophets and apostles in favor of the false claims of Jewish identity. Secondly, the acceptance of Jews led to their predominant position as moneylenders and their ability to concentrate wealth, and with wealth, political power, as they were allowed to operate within the broader Christian society. So our labors continue in spite of the fact 
that for nearly a thousand years, our entire race had, to a certain degree, been united as Christendom, the various European nations under Christ in name, but not necessarily in form. The acceptance of Jews, the ultimate acceptance of usury because of the Jews, and the lack of understanding the integrity of our racial covenant with God have made us susceptible to the systematizing of deception of which Paul is about to speak. While this circumstance has allowed the fulfillment of many other prophecies, because of course God foresaw that this would happen, and especially the encirclement of the camp of the saints, which our race is currently suffering, it is our duty nonetheless to discern and understand what is happening and to strive to correct ourselves as a people. You don't understand the cure. You can't find a cure unless you know the disease. And Paul says that this restoration of the saint, of the saints is in order that we would be infants no longer, being tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men in villainy for the sake of the systematizing of deception. Now the Codex Alexandrinus adds the words of the devil to the end of this verse. Many of the popular translations of the New Testament render this last phrase where we have systematizing of deception as deceitful scheming. While our rendering finds agreement in the translations of Darby and of George Rickard Berry, the Greek word methodia, methodia is craft or wiliness. It's from a verb methoduo, which is to treat by method, to use cunning devices, or to employ craft. In his Greek-English lexicon, Sayer defines the word methodia as cunning arts, deceit, craft, or trickery, but he explains that the word was used to describe the following up to follow up or investigate by method and settled plan. It's the word that we get method from in English. The same word appears in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, where in our translation we have methods. The Greek word plane is a wandering, a roaming, we get the word plane from this Greek word. Metaphorically, it is a going astray, an error to wander, of course. And so here it is deception. And that's one of the definitions provided by Liddell and Scott for the corresponding verb, to make to wander, to lead astray, to, mis to mislead, or to deceive. In Acts chapter 20, 
in his parting discourse to the leaders of the Christian assemblies of Asia. Paul warned about wolves rising up within the Christian assemblies in order to fleece the sheep. Paul had said, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So we have two things in play. We have the craftiness of wolves combined with the egos of our own men. And both things are a great danger to us. During the three centuries of persecution, at the hands of the Jews and the Jewish instigation of the Roman pagans, Christian churches ceased from teaching the gospel of reconciliation and began to adopt the gospel of Roman imperialism, which was the false gospel of a universal Jesus that is tailored to the multiracial needs of any empire. And therefore, it is also the preeminent gospel of today. But it is not the gospel of Christ, and it is not the gospel of Paul of Tarsus. Even with that, when the Roman Empire and its component European nations finally came to accept Christianity. From around the 4th through the 6th centuries, Jews were driven out of Christian lands. The Jew retaliated by contriving Islam. Yes, that's true. By which they militarized both the Arabs and then the Turks against Christendom. The proof is in the pudding and in some old books. The Islamic wars against the Christian European nations lasted for a thousand years, and today they have resumed once again, ever since 1948. In the time of Charlemagne, Jews were admitted into his Holy Roman Empire, and by the 12th century, if not a little earlier, it can be demonstrated that so-called converso Jews were writing biblical commentaries which came to influence all of Christendom. As we have fully demonstrated in our presentations on Martin Luther and the Reformation, the early reformers were heavily influenced by these Jews, these converso Jews, Nicholas of Lyra, Paul of Burgos, because under medieval Jewish influence, Christians began to mistakenly consider Jews to be God's chosen people, where they had previously esteemed Jews to be the people accursed by God, which was the original teaching of the apostles. The apostle John said in his second epistle that each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not God. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. Not to just believe Jesus, but to abide in his teaching. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house and do not speak to welcome him. For he, for he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. 
Therefore, Jews should never have been accepted in Christian lands so that they could perpetrate the systematization of deception which they had begun within Christian society a thousand years ago. In those books of commentaries, they took the writing as if they should teach Christians about the Bible. They began by quietly infiltrating the monasteries, corrupting sounder Christian doctrine, and depicting themselves as angels of God. From there, they were able to create the circumstances by which they finally achieved their emancipation under Napoleon, and their efforts are now coming to fruition since their real endeavor is to destroy the body of Christ. The Jews are the descendants of the ancient Canaanites and Edomites of the Old Testament. They are the children of those races which created Sodom and Gomorrah, which God hated because of their corruption. Now they do the works of their fathers. As we read in Paul's epistles, in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 9, they are indeed Edomites, and Paul describes them as vessels of destruction. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul describes those same Jews as Satan sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be a god. Paul is speaking in the present tense in that chapter, speaking of the Jews of his own time. Today, using the very name of Christ, they have created a gospel of universalism and libertarianism under which Christians are compelled to coexist with devils. And the result is that now we have a society like Sodom and Gomorrah once again. It is this gospel of the Jews and worse which has resulted in what the organized denominations are teaching today. In recent headlines, headlines from the past four or five days, an organization of Lutheran so-called Christians is demanding that the U.S. import hundreds of thousands of Syrian so-called refugees who are Muslims. There'll be a link to the article with this podcast. This is the extent of the system I can't even say the word, I'm sorry, systematization of deception, where Christians are being made to support antichrists, the very devils who would kill them as soon as they had the chance. In other recent headlines, we see that a man recently made a public proposal of marriage to another man in a Methodist church in Texas and he received a standing ovation by the apparently all-white congregation. And we'll have the article and video linked at Christogenia this evening. So the systematization of deception is now so deep that the denominational churches can completely abrogate the commandments of Christ and publicly flaunt their sins. How are they not bow temples? Not to say what's going on with the Muslims in Europe at the behest of the Jews.
Jews. The actual process of the systematization of deception is found where denominational churches pick and choose Bible verses to construct one position or another while they ignore all the Bible verses that deny the validity of their positions. Truly, the days have come of which the prophet Isaiah had said, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. However, God shall not be mocked, and in the end, the saints shall be restored. As Paul informs us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we should walk with Christ in warfare, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. When we as a people submit ourselves to God and reject all of his enemies, we shall indeed experience our restoration. We shall commence next Friday with the discussion of what it means to speak the truth with love, as Paul admonishes us in the next verse of this chapter. Tomorrow night, we'll have a discussion of pink nationalism and of beige or perhaps gray nationalism with Mike Delaney. In truth, sodomites and bastards cannot be nationalists and they certainly cannot be Christians and we should not ever expect them as such. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening.